When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 6.30 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 6.30 Chad. The Edmonton Oilers open a three-game homestand tomorrow. They'll be taking on the Arizona Coyotes. We have the game for you on 6.30 Chad. 5.30 face-off show. The puck will drop at 7 as the Oilers try to get a long overdue victory on home ice. They have lost their last five at Rogers Place, and that has really hurt them along the way this season. My name is Reed Wilkins, Family Day edition of Inside Sports. It is a best of. Man, one of my favorite interviews recently on the show was the Friday before the Super Bowl. We talked to Bobby Singh, and he's a former offensive lineman. What an interesting story he is. He's won a great cup. He won the XFL championship in the one year that the league existed, and he also was part of the Super Bowl champion 1999 St. Louis Rams. You know, it was. Uh, I was talking to a friend about it last night, and uh, that's when you know we we you know, signed Trent Green for a massive contract, and then he got hurt, I believe, against uh, San Diego uh, with Rodney Harrison coming in, and uh, some call it a cheap hit, but it was. Uh, you know, you could you could hear a pin drop in the stadium. And uh, I still remember Dick Vermeil crying after the game, but saying we're gonna, you know, we're going with Kurt and this, and then we we just thought, hey, you know, it's just a, he has to say that because it's got to be positive, and we we actually were in shock. So, uh, you know, Kurt came in and and uh, really didn't look back. He just uh, it reminded me a lot of how Kansas City is playing this year and just flying and, and gunning, and that's how it just it just it just took off. So, uh, you know, I still remember before you know we're six and zero, and it went from having two two or three or four uh, uh, media guys in the, in the locker room to, you know, you can walk around after, uh, you know, by, by week, week uh, 10, it was, uh, it was just crazy. And, you know, just the experience and, and I blocked, I, I was second team. And even though I was on practice squad and then had back surgery that year, you know, I blocked for Kurt and he was just uh, just amazing guy. You know, what you see on TV now and all the, all the stories you hear, it's, it's bang on and, you know, I had lost my brother that year, and he was probably one of the guys that was, uh, you know, always came up and asked how I was doing. And, and you know, his, he lost his in-laws in, in, a, in a hurricane or tornado in uh, Iowa, and he was using that and, and, and comforted me. And, I, you know, I'm a rookie out there in uh, my first year, but I thought that was pretty cool of him and, and the way he handled everything. He, you know, when he was on the, when he was on the sports, he'll say that I got – I think I got 10 of them signed for my family and friends. And, you know, he's always uh, accommodating. But, you know, that's that's what I remember. It just sort of took off, and it was, you know, next thing I know, we're champions. Well, well, that's amazing. And great story about Kurt. I mean, you often have heard that about Warner, that he's just, just a great human being as well as having have had a great football career. And, and I remember that because... Uh, I, that might have been the first year I played fantasy football online, you know, when, oh, when wow. it was starting to take off. And <laughs> and and I I don't you know, and I remember that like Trent Green because there I think there were some moderate expectations surrounding the Rams that they might be okay with Trent Green, but then when when it was Warner, it was like okay, they're going to be like three and thirteen, and then the, the exact yeah, there was, there was uh, 
there was still, I mean, I still remember when I signed, uh, I remember hearing uh, that, you know, we're one win or one loss away from being the most losing, losingest team in, in uh, the decade. So I'm like, oh, Jesus. So we, we, we made that record, but uh, we ended up winning the, I think we were 13 and three that year. So we got that record, but we won the Super Bowl that year too. So now, did you, because of your injury, did you get to to be around the team for the game and that final play oh, with yeah. the tackle? Yeah, yeah. I had I had my surgery in November, actually on my birthday, November twenty first, and then uh, so I was I had a cane for a little while, and I was in rehab, and I was fine. By when February rolled around, I was still uh, with the guys. Okay. Well, what do you remember about that? Was it uh, was it Mike Jones that made the tackle? Did I get? Yeah, Mike Jones made a tackle. You know what? It, uh, it's weird. You know, and, and I think most players will tell you they'll only remember a couple things, and uh, it, it, it just it's such a blur. And you, you know, you're so nervous about the next player winning, and, and it's uh, you know just just certain things. I think Mike Jones tackle sticks out, and uh, you know, for me, it was just. You know, just the, the, the atmosphere and, you know, what the Super Bowl, obviously being a kid and watching it. And, you know, when you're there and you're in the stadium and all that, it's just a, it's, it's that times 10. Bobby Singh joining us on Inside Sports, former offensive lineman. Some memories of being with the 1999 Rams with their unexpected run to the Super Bowl championship. Okay, so let's skip ahead a couple of years. Um I feel like we might have to just do another like full hour on the XFL with you down the road, Bobby. <laughs> but well, you're coming back in 2020, and, and, it, and it's coming back, which is which yeah. is pretty amazing. We'll we'll see how it does. Uh, you were with the LA Extreme. You you blew out San Francisco in the in the title game. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, the the the, the cheerleaders, the uh, competition for the for the ball to determine who got it first. Like, did you? Did that feel like it was a weird situation, or was it just like, no, I'm playing? Like, what do you remember about being in the XFL? So it actually was really good football. And I think anybody that, you know, I played with a bunch of guys in the CFL, played, and they'll tell you it was really good football. The only problem was, I think Vince McMahon came in there and, and trying to make it too much like wrestling, and obviously wrestling is fake, and I think football fans and, and any any legit sports fan doesn't want to see anything fake. So... And I think just from the first, we had a great uh, uh, viewership the first week, but then they got turned off with some of the crap that was happening. It was almost like WWE. And uh, and I feel like the football got better, and we just weren't given a chance to, you know, like, you know, the fans already had enough. So I think, um, you know, I guess it was a sign because we did that uh, instead of the coin toss, put the ball on the, you know, 25 yard away, uh, yards away, and the guys would come run at it. And the first guy first coin toss that they do like that the guy separates his shoulder so i guess that's that was a sign of things to come and i think uh just some of the you know the cheerleading and all that extra stuff that you know it was just a, a waste and i think i think vince gonna uh, has definitely learned and you know a lot of the stuff that he had like the camera in the middle of the field and or you know the experience of of a cameraman on the field never was done before and i think he sort of you know he led the way in that and you know having the names on the bank that was good i mean he, he had the wasn't the guy that played for Edmonton. Oh, he uh, hate me, right? Smart, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, guys like that, they, you know what? He got a career out of that, uh, you know, some extra years. So all in all, it was actually really good football. Um, you know, I was lucky that we had Tommy Maddox. We had a really good team: Jermaine Copeland, uh, you know, Rashad C. C. We we had just had a, a bunch of guys, and it was just fun. 
Bobby Singh joining us tonight on Inside Sports. Okay, so we've covered uh, the amazing Super Bowl. We've covered the uh, the XFL title, and then you got to win the Grey Cup. And uh, you know, you're you're with your hometown team, the BC Lions, in '06. Uh, you beat Montreal 25-14 a year after the Eskimos had that amazing run and knocked yeah, you guys out in your own. Yeah, I, know, I know I'm on an Edmonton uh, station, and I and you guys look back on that tape. That was actually P.I. on G-Roy. Um, no, no, Mobley's just holding <laughs> his ground, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I see it was, you know, when you get so caught up and, and you know, the Great Cup was in, in B.C. that year, and, you know, I, I was... I was like, I think I, w- I came downtown once uh, because I was so distraught by the loss that I came down once for a radio interview at like seven in the morning and I went back home and I didn't come back downtown at all. And, uh, you know, now it's a different story. Now it's, you know, you get out there and you enjoy the festivities and, and drink and have fun with the guys. But, uh, you know, oh oh six was special because I, I got hurt and Sherker Rizzuli came in for me and, uh, you know, I, I, I ended up getting, I tore my rotator cuff and I was just getting a shot up and I just kept on playing. Obviously, I wanted to play in the Great Cup and make a run. And so, you know, Sherco was in and, and, you know, thank God I, I was numb and I shot it up and uh, he went down, unfortunately, and I got to play the second half. Um, so, you know, that was fun for me. I was in, in 04, we lost uh, to uh, Argos, Toronto. Yeah. And, uh, which is on my birthday again. Um, but that was, you know, I thought like we had a, that our 0-4 team was was definitely very strong, and I felt like we should have had that one too. So it was it was pretty tough. So, you know, getting there in 0-6 and being hurt and not being able to start, it was it was tough. But at least I got to go in there and, and play. And, and uh, you know, I, I I think our 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 run we had from you know 0-4 to even while I was gone, I think to 0-7, maybe 0-8, uh, some really good years here. Bobby Singh, former offensive lineman in the uh, NFL, CFL, and XFL, won championships in all three leagues, joining us tonight on Inside Sports with with some great memories. Uh, okay, so do you have all three championship rings? Like, well, what did you get from these? Did you get your share of the million dollars from, from the XFL? Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Uh, I, I have all rings. We got, uh, we got a replica Super Bowl trophy of Sterling Silver, and it's like I think it's not mine's like fifty-eight of four hundred or whatever it is, and uh, it's I think it's three quarters the size, and so it's fairly big. So that's pretty neat to have that and the ring, of course. Uh, and in the CFL, obviously, we got you know the rings, and the XFL I got a ring as well. So uh, XFL, I wish you know I got my helmet. I wish you know they we did get actually get the check too. I think it worked out like twenty-five grand for that game, um, but. Uh, you know, there was a rule that we, you know, we want to take our game jerseys, and and the, the equipment manager said, if, if you don't turn in your game jersey, you're not getting a game check. Oh, so every, I think I think everybody turned their jerseys in. So, <laughs> so I, I wish I would have kept that because that was the last one, and that you know would have meant a lot. But uh, you know, I got a helmet, I got a ball, you know, I got a great cup, uh, or I, just, I got a Super Bowl championship uh, football signed by the whole team. Um, my Grey Cup 06, I had a helmet signed by the team, and I gave that to one of my best friends, and his house got broken into, and it got stolen. Oh, no. So, yeah, so that one's there. And then the XFL, I don't, I don't really have much signed, but I got the ball and, and a lot of pictures. That is Bobby Singh. We will have to have him on Inside Sports again. Incredible storyteller. What a journey he had through his pro football career. When we get back... 
former NHL past Matthew Barnaby on the best of inside sports. Well, it's always a discussion point in the National Hockey League, and it comes up more and more often now surrounding the Edmonton Oilers. How do you protect star players in the NHL? What's the the best way for a team to do that? And if you're uh, playing against a star player, what's the best way to get after them and, and get them off their game? We've seen Connor McDavid take some abuse, take some hard hits during his time here with the Edmonton Oilers uh, game here in Anaheim earlier this season. He got cross-checked from behind. How did the Oilers respond? How should have they responded? Well, I spoke to a guy, a former NHL player, now with the uh, NHL radio on Sirius XM, Matthew Barnaby, who could get out there and be a pest himself. What does he think about protecting stars? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone should should be protected, and that's from the fourth liner to the superstars. And if you protect the fourth liner as well, then you're certainly going to protect the uh, the superstars just uh, because that that's the what is expected. Um, I, I saw all the incidents that have happened to, to Connor and. Uh, I didn't like a, a few of them. I think he takes a, a lot of abuse, and Milan Lucic and guys do try to stand up for them as much as they can, but we know the era that we are in right now. It really is tough to protect those guys, and, and there's not much you can do um, except for let the league take it take its course. So uh, I've been on both sides. I, I've You know, the Eric Lindros, where he was a little different stature, um, of a Connor McDavid, certainly more for me, it was more verbal abuse. I never went out to try uh, to, to hurt stars. Now, if there was a, a check there to be laid, and, uh, I was going to lay it, but it was more verbally and trying to get guys off their game and thinking about me uh, rather than that. Uh, Connor McDavid is pretty hard to chirp considering he's worth over $100 million and, and the star of the National Hockey League and there's no on Connor McDavid yet, but I've also been there trying to protect a star and uh, you want to do that. And I, I know the guys on the team want to, it's just a different era. So it's a lot tougher for these guys to be able to protect their stars. Well, you know what, that that's an ongoing debate. And I, I love how you frame that. And, and certainly I, I do our, our post game show for Oilers games with Rob Brown. And, you know, he played with Mario, with Yager and, and against some of the big names too. And, and he gets asked a lot that too by fans, what is, what is to be done? And as much as we talk about retribution and physicality, you kind of said, like, you can't always fight, right? Like, you can't just constantly go out there and fight every single time something happens. What else can you do if you want to deliver a message? Okay, you know, enough's enough. You need, you know, hands off or, or check them clean, but you need to knock out maybe some of the slashing and elbowing and stuff. Yeah, for, for me, if they're picking on a star player, they're trying to do that to a star player. Uh, whether even if it's within the confines of, of the rules. I, I don't want my star player being hit. And I, as a player, would be letting know, even in this era, that uh, it, it, you're not, you're not, you're not going to take advantage of them. And the only way to do that, I think, is because, you said, with retribution, you can't really go after If a guy doesn't want to fight you, the guy hits Connor McDavid and you go out and Milan Lucic and the guy doesn't want to fight him, he doesn't have to fight him. And he doesn't have to be accountable for his actions on the ice or uh, stand up for, for himself. He, he can just turtle and, and take whatever, whatever comes his way, and you're going to get a power play and maybe a suspension for that guy. So uh, for, for me, uh, the only way to do it is go after the other team star player and make him pay. And any time that they do not slow down, I'm obviously going to be targeting every single time the star player on the other team, and that'll stop. The star players from that team will be going up to their guys that are taking advantage of, of Connor and say, hey, I'm taking the abuse now because you're going after him, so we might want to slow it down a little bit uh, on that end. 
Matthew Barnaby joining us on Inside Sports tonight, former NHL player now with Sirius XM. So, you know, when when you played, uh, I mean, you, you, you said it, you, you tried to get out there and, and get under guys' skins. Who was the, the toughest nut to crack on other teams where you thought, man, Ooh. I'm giving this guy all my best lines, I'm being as, as much as a pest as I can, and I don't seem to be getting through to him? I'd say Bobby Holik was pretty good, even though he wasn't a superstar. He was an integral part of uh, New Jersey Devils Stanley Cup champion teams that we played against. So I'd always try to get under him because he was a funny guy, kind of, and uh, made a lot of money, but he didn't produce all that much. He was a very good player, and he would just look at me and laugh, and it, it never would get him. And on the opposite end, Eric Lindros was probably the easiest. I knew I drove him absolutely batty. I knew I was in his kitchen every time that we played and I knew at some point he was going to retaliate. It was just a matter of time and we would get our power play and hopefully we would score on that power play and and that's how I kind of judged if I was doing my job is can I get these guys to take a penalty on me and put ourselves on the power play thus giving us the opportunity to score and have a better chance to win. So that's kind of how I judged whether I was getting under the skin of people was how many penalties could I draw in a certain game. Interesting. Okay, I wasn't expecting Lindros as, as one of those answers. That's an interesting way to put it. Who is, you're going to love this one, I think, and you mentioned you know the game keeps changing, maybe less and less fighting. You can't do as much about some of the stuff. Who, who in your mind is the modern-day Matthew Barnaby? Is there, is there a guy playing now who reminds you of yourself in your prime? Yeah, I would say he's a better player than I was and obviously produces more than I. But uh, if you look at uh, Brad Marchand and what he does on a daily basis, uh, he is irritating. He's irritating to play against. He's a pain in the ass. Guys hate him. Uh, but he's very, very effective in, in getting people to, to hate him. I think it gets him into the game even more uh, when he's at the top of his game chirp-wise. And obviously, if you're taking a penalty on him, you're also – putting him on the power play and not just his team but him and he's usually the one that delivers the dagger in the way of scoring the goal uh, to really show the double-edged dagger is drawing the penalty another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. He's then scoring on it. So I'd have to say for sure, Brad Marchand, but a much better version of Matthew Barnaby in the scoring department. All right, that is Matthew Barnaby, always entertaining to talk to. He was uh, a guy who could make himself stand out when he played. That's for sure. And now he's doing the same in his radio career. Great to have him on Inside Sports. Okay, we're going to continue with our best of edition. Well, we had uh, Bobby Singon, who won a Super Bowl, a Grey Cup, and an XFL championship. We've had uh, Mike Riley on the show and J.C. Sherritt. They won Grey Cups. Well, how about Ryan Dempster? He won a World Series, the Canadian pitcher, when we return. You'll be listening to an Edmonton Oilers game in this time slot tomorrow. The Oilers will be hosting the Arizona Coyotes, 5.30 for the face-off show. The puck will drop at 7 at Rogers Place. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Best of Inside Sports on 6.30, Chad. They uh, recently announced the inductees for 2019 for the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Some names you'll definitely recognize. Jason Bay, very good hitter during his career. Gord Ash, assistant GM and uh, former assistant GM and GM for the Toronto Blue Jays, and also pitcher Ryan 
Dempster got to play for the Chicago Cubs, got to win a World Series with the Boston Red Sox, grew up in Gibson's B.C. and never imagined one day he'd be going into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. No, you're 100% right there. I think, you know, you have these aspirations as a young kid to play Major League Baseball. And, you know, I always wanted to make a career of it and was able to do that. But And then to sit there, you know, after it's all said and done and be like, wow, you know, like that was pretty cool. Got to do some fun things and play in some all-star games and win a World Series on my way out the door and all those exciting things. But then to get a phone call and say that you're inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame is really special. And you see the the list of guys that are on there, the people that are on there that you're joining, and then the current class that I'm going in with, you know, Gordash and Rob Thompson, who um, who I both know, and then Jason Bay, who I competed against forever and, um, you know, always admired him from across the field. And um, our, our, our careers kind of mirrored each other as far as timeline. So um, a really, really especially humbling thing, and I'm just ex- extremely uh, honored to be going in. It's going to be a, a fun day in, in uh, June and a fun weekend. Well, you know, I got to have Gord Ash on the show on Friday, and yeah, he's quite a story from working in a bank and then going into the ticket department to becoming GM of the Blue Jays. So, yeah, really cool class you're going in with. Tell me a little bit about life uh, growing up in Gibson's BC. Like, were you a kid that played a lot of sports and then you kind of picked baseball as you got older, or was it always baseball for you? What was that like, Ryan? Yeah, I always loved baseball. I, you know, I, I, my mom has my baby book where it says what I want to be when I grow up. And four years old, I wanted to be a major league baseball player. But um, at the same time, I, pl- I played a lot of sports. Um, I didn't play a ton of hockey just because of the situation. A couple brothers and my mom kind of gave us an ultimatum one year. It was like, hey, you guys can play hockey and nothing else because this is a lot of work, or you can play everything else. So we chose everything else, and we played. I played football and then i played basketball and a ton of soccer and basketball as well as baseball and um you know was it wasn't a year-round thing which i'm a huge advocate for i think kids should play all kinds of sports and and get their hands in everything and i think that's the most important thing but um always loved it and then i started going over to the city and, and commuting by ferry and uh playing in uh, west vancouver and then next thing you know i hooked on with a, the north shore twins and uh ran into a great coach and dave empey and paul Jamino and um, was really, really fortunate to be around them and um, helped guide me through, uh, you know, my, my years in high school and uh, flourish into, um, you know, getting drafted and then going to the minor leagues and, and going through all that. So it was it was a pretty interesting journey, to say the least, and, and it all worked out really well. And uh, I got to live out a, a childhood boy, you know, a boy's dream um, come come to fruition. It was pretty cool. Well, that's awesome that you wrote as a four-year-old. You wanted to pitch in the major leagues, and, and you got to do it. <laughs> Mike Johnson is from Edmonton. You guys aren't that far off in age, and I've had him on the show for a few times over the years here, and, of course, he pitched in the big leagues as well. And I asked him about getting noticed in Edmonton. I mean, that's a long way from a lot of major league cities. And I know, you know, in the Vancouver area there, you're a little closer to the States and there's more population. So I'm curious about you getting noticed and maybe when that first thought entered your mind, where it was like, oh, wait a minute, this, I'm getting looked at by big league scouts. Like, I might be able to do what four-year-old Ryan wanted to do. Yeah, well, in the same kind of way, like, getting noticed coming from Gibson's was, was hard to do just for the sense of, you know, it's a 40-minute ferry ride for people who don't know where it's at. It's uh, it's on your way up to Whistler. You, you're stopping Horseshoe Bay and hop on a ferry, and uh, it's still mainland, but there's no roads that go over there, and 
Um, so I had to start going to the city. And then uh, when you're playing in, you know, in Vancouver, you start to get noticed a little bit. And um, I remember Don Cherry, he was the, uh, um, sorry, not Don Cherry, Don Sherry <laughs> with an SH. He was a bird dog for the Texas Rangers. And uh, he kind of just, you know, I still remember, I still have his card. He gave it to me, you know, and um, who I eventually ended up getting drafted by, ironically. But, um, and then, you know, kind of get noticed that way. And then I got to play for Team Canada junior team a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, you know, you go to pitch a game in high school, my senior high school, and I got 30 scouts in the stand. So, oh, jeez. Um, yeah, it was, I still, I tell the story the other day, I still remember my Uncle Russ standing amongst all the radar guns with a hair dryer, pretending he was one of the scouts. So, um, you know, it was, it was pretty entertaining. But, yeah, to get noticed was, uh, was a big thrill. And then all of a sudden it just, you know, it just kind of came really fast. But at the time going through it all, I was so – you know, determined to be a baseball player and go through all that. I didn't even really notice. It was just, I was in the process of it all and just going through that and enjoying that moment and, and just taking it all in as it went along. Yeah, Ryan Dempster joining us on Inside Sports. 16 years in the big leagues as a pitcher going into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame this summer. I'm going to go back to the baseball questions, but I got a really uh, funny text here to 630-630. Reed, can you ask Ryan if he ever got a ride in Relic's jet boat in Gibson's? I assume you remember the beachcombers <laughs> no. and relic. <laughs> I, I didn't, but I did play a round of golf with Bruno Gerussi. That's, that's incredible. And that son of a gun was he was cheating on hole number one. <laughs> it was like, what? You got a foot wedge in your bag? How's that possible? So no, it was uh it was a treat growing up in, in Gibson's where where obviously the Beachcombers was filmed, so uh that was our claim to fame. That and the movie Needful Things by Stephen King was filmed there as well. Well, maybe you're added to that list now as another claim to fame. I hope. <laughs> Ryan Dempster. Oh no, my 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 father was a fire chief. My brothers are firefighters. I'm the black sheep of the family. Oh, geez. Okay, you're you're the freakish athlete. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> I, Ryan, I mean, you 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 know what what Canada's like. You you heard me reading the. Uh, Texts from Oilers fans coming back, and I'm sure you're you're aware the team's not doing so well. So I talk a lot about that, obviously. Um, so I don't I don't get to talk as as a lot as much baseball up up here in Edmonton. So it's great to have you on the show. So I got to ask you something that people always say about baseball players and and baseball players when they're scouted. I want to find out if it's true. the The word is that if a pitcher can throw hard. The scouts will look at them because they can teach control. Like even if you're throwing it over the backstop, if you're throwing 105, they'll take a look at you because they feel like they can teach control. But if you throw 80, they don't think they can get you up into the 90s. True or false? True. Okay. Very true. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. Like I'll have parents, you know, like their kid will be 6, 15, 16, and they'll be like, my kid's got a really good curveball. And I'll be like, scouts don't care. <laughs> they want kids throwing hard. You teach your kid to throw hard. And the easiest way to do that, you know, is to have some velocity, is play catch, you know, build that arm strength up, play some long toss. But you're right. They, they feel like they can teach them command and control and that the ability to throw hard is something that is hard to find. So they'll, uh, they'll, they'll go out into the middle of the woods to find somebody if they can throw hard and, and try and figure out how to teach them over, throw it over a, a, a plate, you know, 60 feet, six inches away. 
Okay, so now when I say that to people, I can say a former big league pitcher told me, so it must be true. <laughs> it's not, it's not yeah, just exact, exactly, absolutely. You know, you, you got to uh, you got to have obviously some great experiences. You played uh, Florida, Cincinnati. Uh, man, we're going to have to do this again, Ryan, because I'm already running out of time and getting short on all the things I want to ask you. But what was it like to be a Chicago Cub? Yeah, it was incredible. Um, my first major league start was a member of the Florida Marlins at Wrigley Field, running out the center field to do my stretching, and the, the bleachers were raining down on me. I was finding out all kinds of things about my mom I didn't know about that she did when I was in high school. Like, you know, they were yelling at me like crazy, and I was like, you know, I got to play here. I need to know what it's like to put a, a home jersey on. And when you wear those blue pinstripes and you put that Cubs logo on, it's uh, it's really really special. It was I was so fortunate to be able to do it for nine years and, um, and to be back working for the team now in the front office role and the way the fans treat me there. I'm extremely grateful and lucky and um, it, it really is a blessing to go. That was my office for nine years and, and walk out there and see that ivy on the wall in the summertime. A, a special special place to call my home ballpark. Uh, I mean, they, they finally won the World Series, obviously, after you retired. And I, and I do want to get to your World Series victory as well, because that's pretty cool. Um, but, like, when you were pitching for the Cubs, and they had some pretty good teams while you were there, like, was it angst? Was it just joy that maybe they would have a chance that year? Like, what what was that vibe like? In 2016. Is that what you're talking about? No, sorry. Like when you were playing, and and there were some good teams that you were on. Like, because I think you went to the postseason a couple times with the Cubs, but they just couldn't quite do it. Like, was it was it negative energy because they still couldn't break the curse, or was it well, we're just happy to be on the play in the playoffs? Yeah, there was no. There was always that feeling of waiting for the you know the other shoe to drop, and it was like you know something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen instead of believing something good's going to happen and you as players feel that you feel that energy when you're out there and um it felt like after you know 2015 when the cubs when when we beat the cardinals to advance all of a sudden cubs fans started to believe that wait a second good things will happen and they started now coming into 2016 they really started to believe that and believe that and, and then all of a sudden you know even to the point where I remember being in section 144 during the World Series Game 7 in Cleveland and Rajay Davis hits that home run. And I just turned to everybody and I said, it's going to be all right. We're going to be just fine. And, you know, the rain delay happened and then they were just fine. And the boys went out there and did their thing and scored some runs and then held it in the bottom of the 10th inning. So, um, you know, it does. It comes from a belief. But that's years and years of them being let down, disappointed, feeling like they are cursed. Because when you go 108 years without winning something, you start to feel like you're never, never going to win. And, uh, you know, it was nice to see it finally happen for, for so many people, but most importantly for those guys who, who did that for the city of Chicago. It was really special. Yeah, that 108 years, that was a bit of a gap, eh? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, uh, you know, people would always, like, ask me, what's that like when I was playing? And I was like, well, you know, it felt like a long time since the last time we won. Like, how the heck am I supposed to know? Yeah. I've, I've been alive since 1977, like, for me, it felt like about, you know, around 30 years when I was playing there. So, um, you know, it is, it is, you understand it and you understand why the frustration. And um, But now there's a great expectation of winning there, which is really awesome. And, and the culture's changed and you have this team that now, now they're disappointed when they win 95 games because you don't, you know, win the World Series. And that's the way it should be. And that's super awesome to see it like that. It's really cool. Ryan Dempster joining us tonight on Inside Sports. You you pitched for the Boston Red Sox in 2013. 
Pretty impressive. You, you put in 171 innings in the regular season at 36 years of age. So uh, you, you did great for them. And obviously you got to be on their World Series winning roster. So, I mean, you got to play home games at Wrigley. Then you got to play home games at, at Fenway and uh, and win a World Series. And, I mean, the Red Sox, I think you'd have to call them this, this century since we flipped to the 2000s. They've been the, the premier franchise. Well, and the Giants. Red Sox and Giants, the premier franchises. Tell us a little bit about being in Boston and winning there. Yeah, it was you know it was a uh, an incredible season. It really was super special. Um, it started uh, a great spring training with a bunch of guys who weren't supposed to win. They were coming off of a a bad year in 2012, and um, and then on on April 15th, the bombing happened at the at the marathon, and kind of kind of shook the whole city. It shook shook us up as a team, um, and then it all of a sudden unified us, and we had an opportunity. Uh, we were gifted this great, you know, kind of opportunity through through tragedy to provide relief and and triumph for uh, the team, and it was really really special. And to see an entire city rally around that, and then all of a sudden we just we knew it. We talked about it. We talked about you know what kind of duck color duck boat you were going to be riding in the parade in, in like June. We had this incredible attitude of nothing's going to stop us, and I think that's because of you know, what the city went through and everybody rallying around us. And then, you know, to win that, to, to my last batter I ever faced in the major leagues to be a strikeout to end game one of the World Series. And my, one of my best friends, David Ross, to shake his hand and, and know that was my last moment um, is really special. And I played there one season. It felt like I played there 10. I'm still close with so many of those guys. We keep in touch all the time. And uh, it really was just an incredible way to end my career and, a uh, special, special moment that I'll never forget about. And then cap it all off to go back there um, the following April and take my son out there and, and uh, receive my ring from the owners and, and, and go out there on the field with him. It was truly magical and so lucky to be able to play in two-storied franchises and, and go out there and, and, and do that it was pretty cool. Ryan, I have one more for you. Thanks for being so generous with your time. If people listen to this show on any sort of a regular basis, they know I often ask this of retired players. It's it's kind of a two-parter. Who was the best player you ever played with, and who was the best player you ever played against? Wow. Um, the best player that I ever played with is probably... I would have to say maybe Derek Lee. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I played with King Griffey Jr., but I played with him towards, you know, his declining years in his career. I mean, if you just look at who the best him, I mean, in his totality of his career, for sure. But watching D. Lee in his prime, the way he played first base, you know, um, the way he could hit for power, hit for average, um, he was he was pretty incredible. You know, playing with Sammy Sosa, uh, you know, he was pretty special too. But you know, just all around defense, base running, um, and and hitting, and, and then the kind of teammate he was. Derek Lee was pretty incredible. Um, when I when I think about the best uh, player I ever played against, I'd have to say Barry Bonds. He was he was unbelievable. It was it was a presence to watch him go up to the plate and and do what he did. And you know, I know there's a ton of stuff and and things tied to to him but um you know he was the, he was the hardest out you were ever going to face and and guys will say the same thing about facing him in 1992 as they would in 2002 so um you know i truly believe he was a hall of famer before all that stuff got involved all the steroid stuff and 
Um, and hopefully one day he's in the Hall of Fame. But, um, you know, he, he was he was pretty incredible to, to face. I'll tell a quick story. I was, I was facing him um, in, in San Francisco and uh, at, at AT&T Park, and I think it's changed now. But anyways, I was getting ready to go start the game, and Kevin Millar grabbed me on the way out to the dugout. Or on the way out of the dugout, he says, you got to find out what you got. When you face Barry Bonds, you better throw it right down the middle and find out who's better. So I go out, and I get the first two guys out, and here comes Barry, and he's barely done up his elbow guard because nobody's pitching to him. And I throw a four-seam fastball 94 miles an hour right down the middle. And all of a sudden, you just see him kind of look out at me, and he goes, oh, you're going to pitch to me. Oh, okay, cool. And he straps his elbow guard on a little bit tighter, and he tightens it up, and then I throw the next one 95 right down the middle. And he fouls it straight back. Like, you know, some people just miss hitting like a ground ball to short or just miss popping it up. He just missed hitting it into the cove. And then now all of a sudden I'm 0-2, and I just fire back and throw a four-seamer right down the middle again, and here we go. And he cranks it, and he hits it into the top corner of the brick wall in right center field for a triple. And I'm like, okay. And I get out of the inning, and I come in the dugout, and Millar grabs me. He goes, well, you just found out he's way better than you are. So <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. Yeah, it was pretty special. That is Ryan Dempster. Love that story about Barry Bonds. Awesome stuff. This is the best of Inside Sports on Oilers and Eskimos Radio, 630 Chad. Hey, thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. Hope you've had a great family day, long weekend. My name is Reed Wilkins. This has been the best of Inside Sports on 630 Chad. Uh, so many uh, interviews to pick from for, for this show. Hope you enjoyed the ones that we were able to bring you. You just heard from former big league pitcher, Canadian kid. He's going into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, Ryan Dempster. You heard from Mike Riley and Trevor Harris, the Eskimos' former quarterback and their new quarterback. Also, J.C. Sherritt, recently retired Eskimos linebacker. Can you believe he joined the coaching staff of the Calgary Stampeders? My goodness. Also, Jovan Santos-Knox, one of the big-name free agent signings for the Eskimos. He's going to be one of the new linebackers. Former offensive lineman Bobby Singh was on the show. He won the Grey Cup, the Super Bowl, and an XFL championship. And former NHL pest Matthew Barnaby also on the show tonight. So tomorrow, I'll be broadcasting from Rogers Place inside Studio 99 for the face-off show at 5.30. We'll have the play-by-play of the Oilers and Coyotes starting at 7. Next edition of Inside Sports from 6 to 8 on Wednesday night. The producer of the show is Dave Campbell. The studio producer this evening is Kellen Kennedy. Don't forget to always get more on the latest in the Eskimos and the Oilers on 630Ched.com. My name is Reed Wilkins. Have a great night. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.